Hi, welcome to the Arts Report for July 24th, 2013. I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley. Tonight we'll talk about all the fabulous events at the Queer Arts Festival, which opens tonight. We have Mark Bentley Cohen on talking about his play Bi, Hung, Fit, and Married. I'll fill you in on the International Buddhist Film Festival. And stay tuned after 6 p.m. We have a special arts project from CITR's Matt Granland about his aunt, Eisheart, an artist who lives um, on the island of Sointula. Hi, thanks for tuning in. It's a hot, beautiful day in Vancouver, and there's so much to talk about tonight. I'm just going to jump in. Usually I sort of do an intro about UBC or CITR. Um, I have written here drama, um, and I think what I wanted to talk about was a little bit was about the importance of art in our lives. Um, there was some news I meant to get to last week, which is about the Artist Studio, and it's... Um, a community agency for people with mental illness and they can go to the art studio and they get a little bit of funding for art supplies and it's like a clubhouse where they can hang out and make art and it's a beloved place um, and then Vancouver Coastal Health announced a lot of funding cuts and and cut the art studio and it was pretty devastating to hear about it and it hit the consumer mental health consumer community very hard and actually a few of them marched at the Vancouver Art Gallery um, and in response to the public pressure Vancouver Coastal Health reinstated the funding for a year only but it was a major triumph um, because they've cut anything that can go um, and people spoke up about the importance of art and I also went to a, a talk just like half an hour ago about drama um, in the education department and this guy, Michael Anderson, a prof from the University of Sydney, and his colleagues spoke. Wasn't the most exciting talk, but um, they talked about how drama activates learning and the importance of drama. So they did a bunch of studies that proved that, you know, involvement in arts programs actually improves academic outcomes. Um, and so, you know, it can be enjoyed just for the creative process. It can be used as a teaching tool. And I would go as far as to say that it's a healing tool as well. If you think about a place like the art studio or therapeutic, music therapy, art therapy, psychodrama therapy. And I'm just thinking of my friend Victoria Maxwell's play, That's Just Crazy Talk. Um, and she does a one-woman show about her experience with mental illness. And they did a bunch of um, questionnaires and so on with audience members and interviews and found that it did decrease stigma um, in people that saw the play. So that's my little wrap. There's so much going on in Vancouver. I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, there's a show that, that's on, and it started June 22nd. I have no excuse, so I haven't gone, and I've meant to talk about it every episode. Um, there's only a few more days. It ends July 27th, and it's called House Advantage, and it's at Gallery 221A um, on East Georgia, and it features new work by artists Fabiola Carranza, Eureka Iga, Arvo Leo, and Peggy and Karen Nagan, based on ideas of play, chance, and commerce with a focus on the culture of gambling and games. And it looks like they have some really interesting art in the show. Um, and I'm just fascinated by, you know, gambling. Not in the real sense, but in a psychological sense of, of all the different 
factors that come together to make it both exciting and potentially addictive and destructive. Um, and some of the mental sets that go around getting people to engage in gambling, like sort of game theory or, um, you know, different distortions um, that might get people to continue gambling. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, and just some of the flash and glamour that goes around with that, too. Like, I like to go to the horse racing track. Um, and I'm thinking of an artwork by Rodney Graham that he did in 2010. It's called Good Hand, Bad Hand. You could just Google that into Google Images along with Rodney Graham. And he made a beautiful artwork um, of a self-portrait. And he's wearing, like, um, you know, he's like a professional poker player. And he's got a big stack of chips. And he's holding his cards. He's got his Masonic ring and a cool trucker hat and he just looks super cool in the photo um so yeah i'm sort of fascinated by the idea of gambling which is why i wanted to go to the show and i just made some notes here but they're really boring about you know addiction um because gambling ultimately can be you know for the odd person a lotto ticket or whatever or the slots can be you know just fine or fun or stupid but for a lot of people they get heavily addicted and it's one of the most destructive addictions actually there's 200 problem gamblers that commit suicide in Canada every year um, and it's sort of been found that behavioral addictions such as gambling activate similar brain regions the sort of pleasure um, pathways that drugs of abuse do um, and so over time, the addictive behavior becomes less pleasurable, but the the compulsion to do it becomes greater. Um, and so problem gambler, gamblers report a feeling of high cravings, preoccupation with gambling, withdrawal symptoms, actually, when they stop gambling, um, things like anxiety, depression, edginess, cognitive deficits. And when I was talking about the mental sets related to gambling talk about distorted thinking so uh, sort of false beliefs that that feed the addiction so illusions of control over luck so you know we have we might have a false belief that we're going to win or we have a better chance of winning than we actually do in fact the house usually wins um, and magnification of our gambling skills so minimizing the times that we lose um, and maximizing the times that we win and of course the rush of winning is what we remember um, I've you know I've gone to the track and gambled you know but I've never won like you know you win like a dollar or so it's not that reinforcing um, but anyway I really encourage you go to see to the show um, the 221A gallery which is at 100 221 East Georgia in Vancouver. The show runs till July 27, uh, July 27th, which is Saturday. So please go. That was kind of like a high-paced ramble. Um, but that's because it's the Queer Arts Festival opening tonight. But I'm going to talk about that. Um, we're basically devoting most of the show to that. But I want to talk first about the International Buddhist film festival so let me just bring it up here um it's the world's leading resource for buddhist themed and buddhist inspired cinema um, and they present films of all kinds and it, it sort of travels around to different cities so i think it's the first time it's been um, shown in vancouver and it's founded by buddhist scholars authors and activists um, and they've got an advisory council that um includes Philip Glass, 
Richard Gere, author Alex, Alice Walker, and um, Robert Thurman. So um, there's a whole bunch of films, and, and one that I wanted to talk about was Crazy Wisdom. So I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But first I wanted to play, replay my interview um, with Robert Thurman. So Robert Thurman is Uma Thurman's father, and he was here last year at UBC, and I had the incredible privilege um, to interview him. And uh, that interview played last year in the Arts Report, but I want to play it again just because I'm proud of it. Um, and so I'll play that, and then I'll come back and talk about this really interesting film at the film festival um, called Crazy Wisdom. So here's Robert Thurman, Uma Thurman's father. The beginning of the clip, he's he's talking about the exhibition that was on at the time, um, but then he just gets into talking about general principles of Buddhism. Fascinating guy. He's a professor, um, considered one of the world's top scholars in, in Buddhism, um, like best friends with the Dalai Lama. They love each other, and uh, just fascinating brilliant guy. Here he is, Dr. Robert Thurman. Whoa! Wrong file. Hold on. Here he is. It's that kind of day. Here we go. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, Sarah is the name of a famous monastery in Tibet. Oh, wonderful. Or the other meaning is a hailstorm. Oh, yes, I'm stormy. Well, I'll take okay, what can I do uh, for you? What question can I answer? Sure. Well, I guess I would start with um, one thing I saw in the um, exhibition, the Guan Yin, and this idea of observing the sounds of the cries of the world. Yes. What do you think about that? Well, it uh, comes from the Sanskrit Avalokita Ishvara, and uh, Ishvara means God in uh, Sanskrit, and... Um, and the idea of Avalokita means who looks down with concern and with loving care. So in a way, the, the Bodhisattva figure arose in India originally as a kind of image of the divine that was not some sort of awesome, frightening thing, you know, that you make sacrifices to and hope that they don't, you don't get a thunderstorm, but rather was a concerned, caring, sort of... Um, fatherly or motherly figure who looked down lovingly on the world. And then when that was translated into Chinese, they took the word Ishvara and they made it into a word meaning sound or cry. And uh, they said, who looks down seeing the cries for help of beings. You know what I mean? So, so anyway, it ends up with the same meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, in China, of course, they didn't have a monotheistic idea like they had in India. So, um, so it didn't quite have the same function, but it still conveyed the same thing. Then in, in China, they, in India, they divided the male and female aspects of that kind of compassion uh, divinity uh, into Tara and Avalokiteshvara, you know, Tara with the female. But in China, they didn't somehow get Tara, so they have just male and female Kuan Yins. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful idea, and it relates to a shift in the world about 283, 200, 300 years ago, where um, societies began to think of the divine as benevolent, loving and caring, rather than sort of awe-inspiring and terrifying, mm-hmm. as the earlier Vedic thoughts had been in India, you know, mm-hmm. and in other cultures, you know. So how does so that... It's, it's a, wonderful, a wonderful idea, and then it connects, of course, with the Buddhist idea of the purpose of human life being to become enlightened because when you're enlightened then you'll cheer up. Yeah, so how do you feel like with that versus sort of anger at what's happening in the world or your feelings about Tibet being um, 
emancipated or yeah. well the thing about it is that uh, the Dalai Lama leads the way um, in the sense that um, he refrains from anger at the uh, tormentors and oppressors of the Tibetan people the Chinese and he prays for them and he wishes for their happiness and he seeks to dialogue with them to non-violently liberate his people and uh, this is of course a very hard example to follow even for he himself he often says but um, you, you know in the Buddhist view the evildoer we have to be compassionate for the evildoer because it doesn't mean we shouldn't oppose them being compassionate doesn't mean let them continue doing evil if we can possibly stop it but um, so we try to prevent them or stop them from doing evil but we don't do it out of hatred because the evildoer is going to suffer a lot of very unfortunate unhappiness in their ongoing, even if they don't in this life, they will in another life. You know, similar to Jesus' idea of, you know, who lives by the sword will die by the sword, you know. Mm-hmm. It's similar to that, but it's projected into a plane of multi-life biology where people are continua that go life after life, you know. And what they do in a particular life then shapes how they experience the next one. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that some God punishes them, different from the West in that sense, but it's that they themselves earn a, a realm, they enter a realm of paranoia and violence that blows back on them, I think. So what, one of the fascinating... So we don't get angry, so in our, in our attempt to do that, we try not to be angry with the Chinese. Yeah. We want the Chinese to do well, we want them to be happy, and we're sure that if they are happy, that uh, they will stop tormenting other people. Because people who do that usually do it because they're not happy themselves and they feel some other person is in the way of their happiness so they have to trample them and then they'll get happy, but actually they don't get happy so then they trample more people. You know? Yeah. It's a never-ending cycle. What do you think about the deliberate reincarnation that the Lamas do in terms of setting up their next life? Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it's a great idea. I think that I was born in New York this life. And I'm working hard to make sure that I get reborn here in Vancouver. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> it's such a nice day. on a day like this, I'll be having a nice day with my friends. Oh, good. Well, and uh, and uh, although I'm a little weary, I get up at 4.30 to catch an early flight. Hmm. But uh, 4.30 U.S. time, you know, 1.30 a.m. here. And uh, But, uh, no, I, I think it's a great idea to learn how to do it, of course, is no joke. It takes a lot of inner... Navigation. I call people who know how to do that psychonauts, and they are equally trained as astronauts are, but in an internal way. Yes. And uh, so uh, to learn how to pick your womb, pick your species, pick your city, even pick your neighborhood, I think that's really tough, you know. But uh, we're all d- d- drawn into life by our uh, what we're attracted to, actually, and so. Um, if you're happy and you're attracted to beauty, then then you'll do well. Yes. If you're if you're, if you're miserable and attracted to ferocity, then you're in trouble. Yes. Do you have a favorite mantra? A favorite mantra? Well, I have a lot of them, but I guess Om Mani Padme Hum is it's everybody's favorite. Really, you know, that's the national mantra of Tibet. You know, Om Mani Padme Hum. It Om means you know, invoking the divine and the infinite into the present. And then money means the jewel, a wish-fulfilling jewel, which means compassion, symbolizes compassion. And Pema or Padma means the lotus, which symbolizes infinite wisdom. And then Hung means, you know, may it take place in my heart type of thing. It integrates it in the individual. So, so that's a very nice mantra, really. It's sort of, it's, a, it's the all is well mantra. My mother
devotee of Shakespeare, her religion was Shakespeare, and her favorite um, statement in life was, all's well that ends well. <laughs> and so all my home is like repeating an all is well mantra, you know, that whatever happens, life or death, failure or success, that there is a sort of force of love in the universe that is the dominant force, even though it doesn't look like it all too often. That was Robert Thurman, Uma Thurman's father, talking about Buddhism because the International Buddhist Film Festival is taking place July 26th through August 1st. Uh, most of the films are being held at the Van City Film Theater um, and the Vancouver International Film Center. And so you can check it out at BuddhistFilmFoundation.org. Um, Dr. Robert Thurman is part of one of the documentaries called The Buddha, um, and it's narrated by Richard Gere. Um, and so that's one to check out. There's also one with Johnny Depp in it called Dead Man in a, a rarely screened masterpiece. Johnny Depp plays a 19th century greenhorn from the East who heads west by train. I don't know. He looks hot, but my guess is it's probably not that good. Um, the one that I do know is good and really hope to see is called Crazy Wisdom. And um, I'm just going to find it here. It's a documentary. Now, it's come out a while ago, and probably people might have seen it, but um, it explores the life teachings and crazy wisdom of the late Chogyam Trungpa, and he wrote a book called Crazy Wisdom. Um, and he brought, he was an important figure in bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West, and um, he trained in the Tibetan monastic tradition, and he shattered preconceived notions about how an enlightened teacher should behave. So he smoked, he drank beer, he slept with his students, um, yet he had this wonderful, loving energy. Um, and Joni Mitchell wrote a song about him. I'm not sure which, which one it was, um, but I'm just going to play a little clip of his. There's lots of clips from the film on YouTube if you don't happen to make it out from the film, and you can get it on Netflix or download it from the Crazy Wisdom website. But uh, here's an audio clip, a little bit from the documentary, and, and a little bit of um, Trungpa's own words. And I think the audio is pretty clear, so I'll just play it. Urgency about him. He never gave up on anyone, on showing us the full potential of our humanity. The heretics and bandits of hope and fear are transformed into crazy wisdom. wisdom person, which is direct translation from the Tibetan, what's known as Yeshe Cholwa. Yeshe meaning wisdom, Cholwa is uh, gone wild. So in this case, it's a craziness gone wisdom. I like that. Craziness gone wisdom. Before the accident. Oh, um, there was another clip that I watched, one of his students who um, had spent three years with him, and I guess as part of the documentary, and the student was like, uh, the, the documentary person said, you know, was it difficult to commit three years of your life, or did it feel like stressful or a trap to make that commitment? 
And he started weeping and saying, like, no, I just loved being with him. And he had this hanky, but it was more like a giant scarf. And he was just like this deep kind of grief, weeping, talking about um, his love for his friend and, you know, how it had been 40 years, I guess, since he passed away. And, um, you know, that he had come and went. This beautiful energy just came and went. He's somewhere, wherever you are, Trungpa. Okay, let's move on with the craziness. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a break for some messages from our sponsor. Then we're going to come back and devote the rest of the time to the Queer Arts Festival. I've got some great stuff coming up. On Monday, August 5th, Kurt Vile and the Violators will be playing at the Rickshaw Theater. On tour to support their new release, Walking on a Pretty Days, these guys are like super cool. Advanced tickets available at Red Cat, Zulu, and High Life Records or online at ticketweb.ca. Sponsored by CITR. Become a friend of CITR and get great discounts in the Main Street area at Antisocial Skateboard Shop, Devil May Wear, Lucky's Comics, Neptune Records, RX Comics, Red Cat Records, The Regional Assembly of Text, Temple of the Modern Girl Boutique, The Wallflower Modern Diner, and Woo Vintage Clothing. It pays to be a friend of CITR. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or online at citr.ca. On Saturday, August 3rd, the Queer Arts Festival presents Yamantaka Sonic Titan. Come check out this experimental art and music collective from Montreal as they blend mythology, black and white television, psychedelica, and rock operatics into a sensory feast. Tickets are only $5 for youth 24 and under, courtesy of TD's Come Out for Art Youth Ticket Program, and $20 advance for adults. For more information, go to QueerArtsFestival.com, sponsored by CITR. Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley. The Queer Arts Festival, yay! We've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Megan, uh, the co-host of the Arts Report, works for the festival, so she's taking the next three weeks off to focus on that. So I'm hosting today and two the next two weeks, uh, and I'll be dedicating a chunk of our programming to events at the Queer Arts Festival. Um, and the festival is called Transgression Now, and it kicks off Pride season by celebrating queer arts and artists. It starts tonight and uh, runs through August 9th. So there's a ton of like musical performances, plays, visual art, workshop, workshops, and much more. So um, tonight is the opening gala party at the Roundhouse Community Center, um, and on display will be the Transgression Now visual art exhibit curated by Glenn Altine and Paul Wong. So the show talks about notions of transgression, um, 
and that queer art and politics have al always sort of pushed that, I guess. But um, what we once saw as transgressive is now commonplace um, when you think about all the stuff floating around on the internet. Um, but they talk about the digital age also being embedded in sort of a conservative social environment. Um, so you see a polarization, I guess, between things going in a very conservative way, yet things also moving more and more into, you know, things that we previously considered taboo being more and more mainstream. Um, so transgression now looks at where queer artists still transgress social, gender, and political boundaries and what that looks like now. So the art show's on display at the community center throughout the festival. And I'll be heading down to the gala right after the arts report. And there's some cool live performances, life drawing, I guess that means naked people, decadent delectables, and effervescent bevies. Drinks, I guess. And I love the tagline, let's see how gay it gets. Um, although it does end at 11 p.m. and it's at a community center. So how gay can it get? I don't know. I'll tell you next week. Looking forward to that. So speaking of people I'd like to get gay with, Amber Dawn. Amber Dawn's been on the show. Megan uh, did a long interview and uh, devoted quite a bit of time to talking about her book, How Poetry Saved My Life, which came out fairly recently. Um, and her book was about her life as a sex trade worker, um, living as a queer woman, um, and surviving that story. And she's a very talented writer, and she teaches writing, and she's putting on a memoir writing workshop for transgressive voices. And that's July 26, 6 to 8.30. Um, and the workshop invites participants to write undertold and boundary-pushing stories from their personal experience. I've got many of those undertold and boundary-pushing stories um, so I'd really like to go to the workshop. Um, and she wants to help people develop strategies to create safe and celebratory spaces for these stories to be heard. Um, so she'll sort of draw from her book, and people will work in small groups, do free writing exercises, and participants should come prepared to share, listen, and take risks. So if you go... Bring a pen and paper, and by the end of the workshop, you should have a draft of one to five poems or a 2,000-word short story. Um, and and uh, so that's July 26, 6 to 8.30 p.m. at the Roundhouse. And she's doing another one on Saturday, July 27th, between 2 and 4.30 p.m. Um, if you go to the Friday one, it might be a bit of a bind because Amber Dawn's workshop overlaps with something else fabulous, that's on July 26th at 7.30, and that's Lick Lick Pick. It's an intimate dance duet by provocative and award-winning Montreal choreography George Stamos, and the piece emphasizes the empowerment of the human body while following imaginative impulses and queer tangents along the way. That sounds very intriguing. Um, and so it playfully evokes the pig as a totem animal, which is good luck. Uh, apparently. Um, Stamos and his dance partner, Danny Desjardins, explore the animal urges in men. Nice. Combining references to children's stories, pets, lounge lizards, and gay pig boy culture. I don't even know what that means, pig boy culture, but I'm going to ask and hopefully find out. Um, while toying with male sensuality in a body-based somatic score. Warning on the website, it says this performance may contain nuts. I'm sure it will, um, but I bet it's going to be really interesting. And George Stamos, the choreography, is also giving a workshop the next day. So he's going to teach you 
improvisational dance techniques. Um, and you can just get dancing and exploring. Um, and the workshop is a safe, mature, and queer place to learn skills and strength and abilities. Um, and so that is Saturday, July 27th, 12 to 2, and it costs $10. So you've got a couple of workshops, that, um, and George Stamos's performance, Lick, Lick, Pick. And all of this information can be found at queerartsfestival.com. And now I want to talk about an event that's on July 28th, um, between 5 and 7. This one's at SFU Woodwards. Most of the events are at the Roundhouse Community Center. And it's called the Rainbow Refugee Discussion Forum. Um, so one of the sort of important sort of feature events of the Queer Arts Festival is the, a lesbian opera called When the Sun Comes Out. So the people involved in When the Sun Comes Out, and we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, it's partnering with Rainbow Refugee to engage in community outreach programs, um, getting people together to talk about homophobic violence, migration, and the search for community and home. Um, and so there'll be a panel speakers, some from uh, When the Sun Comes Out, and a couple of people from the Rainbow Refugee group. Now, the Rainbow Refugee Committee was formed in 2000, and they've received some government funding, and it's a Vancouver-based community group that supports and advocates people seeking refugee protection because of persecution based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or HIV status. So the Rainbow Refugee Committee engages in outreach, advocacy, and public education about refugee issues. And they've got an excellent website at www.rainbowrefugee.ca. Now, um, I looked up online, and we all know that homosexuality is illegal in some countries, but, you know, we're very fortunate to have a free society, and it, it can sometimes, I think, go, um, you know, on the back burner. But I looked up, and just one statistic I found was um, 76 countries still persecute people on the grounds of their sexual orientation, seven of which punish same-sex acts with death. Um, so I have the privilege today to talk to Chris Morrissey. She's going to be um, on the panel on the Sunday event at SFU Woodwards. And she's, she's talking here about Rainbow Refugee. Um, she has slightly different statistics, but they're in the ballpark. So here's what she has to say about the organization. Sarah. Hi, Robert. Oh, How are I you? did this again. Uh, Hold the on. Monastery in Tibet. Oh, one. It's always nice to hear Robert Thurman's voice. Here we go. We have been providing support information to people wanting to make a refugee claim based on their sexual, sexual orientation or gender identity because of a fear of persecution if they're sent home. So we, we, hold, um, we hold monthly drop-ins, and also we have somebody available once a week we hold monthly monthly drop-ins at the at the com community center on the second Thursday of every month at 7:30, and so we spend time with uh, the folks in in who who come to the drop-in. They share um, some of their experiences. Um, they help each other in terms of how far along people are in the process. 
and share what it was like for them uh, at that same stage. Um, we provide them with information. We also write letters of support for them. And if they want, we go to their hearings to be there as a support. And a couple of years ago, we began an overseas sponsorship portion of, of our work, um, which means that we, we have a bl- blended program with the federal government in which if we can form uh, what we call circles of hope, small groups of queers, predominantly queers, who are willing to uh, commit for a year from the time the person arrives to commit for one year to provide them with all the support they need for that year in terms of uh, getting integrated into Canada and also provide the financial support for them for nine months. Um, the government supplies the first three months and some startup costs. So we're also in the process of, <coughs> of um, working with different groups to sponsor uh, someone from who's already in another country. So, for example, somebody from Uganda might be in in um, in Kenya or in South Africa. Somebody from Pakistan might be in Sri Lanka. Um, so, a person who to make a refugee claim, they have to be outside of their home country. Um, and so, we we uh, are trying to find form groups of people in our community who are willing to take that sponsorship responsibility on. Wow. So um, that's like a really meaningful way to contribute, isn't it? (laughs) I think so. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So there's something like 76 countries where homosexuality is illegal or... Uh, I think it's, um, oh God, if I remember the numbers, I think it's 52 with five five countries and two regions where there's still the death penalty. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, I mean, it is pretty serious. Uh, I mean, I was just talking to somebody um, the other day who told me that her her partner, who uh, was in Iran, was arrested and, and killed by stoning. So, you know, I mean, there are people whose lives is, who, whose physical life is, is in danger and jeopardy. And then it goes from that, sort of that extreme to, to people who are not able to live openly um, without getting, having some punishment, whether, usually, oftentimes it's imprisonment um, for various lengths of time. Um, and basically, it means they're they're they have to be in the closet forever mm-hmm. uh, in order for them to stay out of jail, to be able to get a job, uh, to be able to live somewhat of a of a a normal life that would be a normal life for a straight person, but clearly isn't a normal life for somebody who's a member of our community. Mm-hmm. Hi, we're back. This is Sarah Lapsley on CITR 101.9 FM. That was Chris Morrissey from the Rainbow Refugee Committee, and she is part of an event um, happening as part of the Queer Arts Festival. It's Saturday, July 27th. 
oh, sorry, Saturday, July 28th, between 5 and 7 at SFU Woodwards. And again, see queerartsfestival.com for all the details of all the events happening over the next three weeks. Um, yeah, when I spoke to her, it's like, I'm rarely at a loss for words, but once in a while, you just don't know what to say. Like, somebody being stoned for their sexual orientation is just unthinkable and and I don't know what to do other than to pray for those that are still suffering and support organizations like the Rainbow Refugee Organization. Obviously, there's opportunities uh, for people to sponsor refugees um, and contribute to the circles of support that they do, but just um, to honor the people that have um, been faced with this situation, I wanted to play a song by The Organ, Vancouver band, The Organ, a bunch of lovely ladies, and this is their song, Love, Love, Love.
Australia and Canada are both countries with a whole lot of space to create some of the wildest sounds on the planet. Join your host Matthew as he explores the musical heritage of his native Australia and features fresh sounds from Canada's independent music world. That's Stranded, the Australian-Canadian music show, live Fridays from 6 to 7.30pm on CITR 101.9 FM. Hi, this is Sarah on CITR 101.9. That was just a little show promo for Matt Granlin's show, the Australian-Canadian Music Show. And he'll be on at 6 p.m. with a radio doc he made about his aunt, Iceheart. She lives on the island of Sointula, and she's a really interesting artist. So stay tuned for that, and I'll remind you again at the end. And I just played Love, Love, Love by the organ. Um, and I I found an interesting quote about love this week, and I thought it it's kind of on the mark. It says, What have I to say about love? For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. Even as he is for your growth, so he is for your pruning. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. So true. Uh, I think that's Khalil Gibran. Anyways, I'm talking next to a very interesting guy who has a unique take on love and um, his name is Mark Bentley Cohen and he's got a one-man show featured in the Queer Arts Festival. It runs tomorrow, um, Saturday and Sunday. So check out the website for details. But the first, uh, yeah, there's various uh, times. But um, his, his, his show is called By, Hung, Fit and Married, An Erotic Journey. Um, and it's about his life and how he sort of came out of the closet to his wife and he expected her to divorce him but instead they stayed together and now they have this um quite a wild sex life of open relationships and sleeping together and with other people and um I wasn't sure like how I would respond to him you know I just didn't quite know what to make of him he writes a blog and um and so on and and then I talked to him and he was like such an authentic nice person like I just thought yeah like I'm happy for you um and he also counsels people and does education around open relationships um so the play looks really good and I just had a nice chat with him this afternoon and so I'll let he's worked as a filmmaker radio broadcaster um and now he you know makes films and he wrote a book about his experience he's doing the play and so um, I'll just play the interview with Mark Bentley Cohen about his life and um, his upcoming play, By Hung, Fit and Married. I, I had the desire to be with the guy again. And so I snuck around and, um, you know, started to just try to see really what was going on with me. And uh, I really wasn't able to talk about it at the time and really didn't know what to say. So I sort of took the initiative, took things into my own hands, so to speak, and um, started experimenting. And at one point I realized, okay, the experimentation has led to uh, the realization that I'm bisexual. And so now the question was, really when I started off this experimentation, I thought I was never going to tell anyone about this. It was just something that um, 
I was going to do and just keep it private. But then uh, my need for authenticity really um, is what <clears throat> prompted me to come out to my wife. I just, I, I didn't want to, I could no longer go on living this lie. And I knew that the repercussions could be drastic. She could leave me. She could take the kids. She could do whatever she wanted, really. Um, but it didn't matter. I, I, I just needed to live more authentically and to be who I am fully and completely. So that really prompted me to come out to her. And once I did come out to her, really our relationship needed changing anyhow. And we both used it as a catalyst to... Um, we used it as a catalyst to make a lot of changes in our relationship. So that's really where things started. I guess you could say that once I came out and told her what I'd been doing, we both kind of said, all right, you know what? Our old relationship is over. It's finished. It's dead. Our marriage is over, really. I, I started off, um, and this is in the play, uh, which is completely true. I, I started off the whole part of telling my wife what I've been doing. by I started off by saying our marriage is over. And it was over, and it is. It, ha it, it did end at that point. We, you know, we embarked upon a new relationship after that, and it really was a, a big change for both of us. So, um, yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've sort of segued it into, you know, writing about it um, and blogging about your life, and. And now, and also working with people and educating them and counseling them around issues around sexuality. Yeah, I mean, um, so you know, it, it took about a year, maybe a year and a half, for my wife and I to kind of settle down a little bit into you know the new changes that had taken place and this new paradigm that we were now living. Uh, but once we did, and I, I could see that we were you know over the hump and that things were actually going to work out, and not only work out but work out well. Uh, for both of us, because our relationship really transformed, it really blossomed in ways that it had never done before um, my coming out. And the changes that we made in our relationship were, were fantastic. And the things that resulted, like by opening our relationship, which is one big change that we did, we opened our relationship, and which was exciting and fun and new and interesting and uh, really learned a lot. We both learned a lot about ourselves and our and each other. And you know, the strange thing is that we really fell in love with each other more um, deeply. And once again, after we opened our relationship and started experimenting with other people, so I, I you know, I, I meet a lot of bi guys and um, bi guys in particular. And um, there's a lot of bisexuals out there I knew who were struggling, you know, they were struggling with uh, identity, they were struggling with these questions of, um, I know a lot of them were hiding and were like I was, who was kind of sneaking around behind their wives' backs and going through the internal confusion and confliction that happens and that happened to me. And so at that point I thought, you know, I, I felt like I had something to offer other bisexuals and uh, uh, other people in general, but certainly specifically bisexuals, having gone through the transformation of coming out and then seeing that, you know, it, it's possible. It's possible. Now, one of the big conflicts that bisexuals have is they, 
you know, this, this decision to either express their sexuality uh, openly or um, sort of, you know, make a decision and choose a sex and then settle down with that partner. But they don't feel like they can have both, their honest expression of bisexuality as well as a strong primary relationship. And so I really, I wanted to tell people that it's possible. You know, you can, you can find that balance. You can find partners for whom that is acceptable. You can work these things out. And um, I wanted to sort of offer, you know, a little bit of hope to people who were otherwise going through a lot of um, inner conflict and turmoil. So that really uh, prompted me to just, I started the group Bisexuals in Vancouver, and uh, that you know, sort of got off the ground slowly. I'd, I'd meet with bisexuals, talking with them, and then I um, contacted community. I started uh, volunteering with them. And since then, you know, my wife and I have uh, offered uh, workshops to couples and people interested in open relationships and various other things like that. So, yeah, that's how it sort of started. So you spoke... Yeah, sorry. Um, just you spoke to some of the benefits of, um, you know, open relationships and authenticity, like you know, transformation and intimacy and excitement. And um, are there like challenges that you see that come with that? Yeah, I mean, what we what I like to say to people is that having an open relationship is not it's not the easy route. You know, the easy route is to just tuck your feelings down inside of you, repress them, <laughs> you know, and just kind of live in a sort of humdrum, maybe a little bit of confliction, but not a lot of drama. Um, <clears throat> whereas, you know, an open relationship, it, it's, it's definitely a more challenging route. You, emotions get stirred up, um, feelings get stirred up, uh, you're challenged uh, on a, you know, fairly regular basis as to you know, asking sort of big questions like, what do I want from my life? What do I want from a relationship? What do I want from my partner? Who am I? What do I want sexually? You know, things that most people just kind of put to bed, if you'll pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people don't walk around questioning their sexuality, questioning whether they want a, you know, a, rela a primary relationship or a monogamous relationship. A lot of people take these things for granted. So opening up these issues and questioning them on a regular basis and being with a partner who's also questioning them and then actively, you know, experimenting and putting yourself in situations where, you know, you really don't know how you're going to feel. No one knows exactly how they're going to feel when his or her partner goes out with another person until it actually happens. Because um, you just don't know. It's an unknown experience. And so you might think or imagine or wonder or worry about what might happen, but until it actually happens, you don't know. So, you know, you're challenging yourself and that you're, you're creating new experiences for yourself and you are opening yourself up to experiencing new emotions that are really unforeseen and you have no way of judging them. And that's the scary thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. How do you, like, just asking for a friend, how do you, like counsel people to handle feelings of jealousy and abandonment that come up? Well, um, you know, jealousy is one of those things that um, some people are just are very jealous and some people are not that jealous and it just it's one of those unknowns. It's just an unknown thing. You really, you know, you don't even know how you're going to react 
until it happens. And so I guess one of the things that we tell people about jealousy is just to, first of all, be okay with it. You know, it's, it's okay to feel jealousy. The world's not going to come to an end. You're not going to blow your head off because you're jealous. I mean, it's uncomfortable, and it, it you know, it, it, it could be very intense, but you're not going to die from it, and, um, you know, nothing's actually going to happen, and you will sort of get over it. So, you know, the one thing with jealousy is, is allowing it. Mm. And uh, the, the thing that a lot of people also um, overlook is that, you know, a lot of the focus is on the person who is jealous, whereas the person who's, you know, doing the actions that create the jealousy also has a, a, a very heavy burden. You know, it's tough to watch your partner um, be so unhappy and filled with jealousy and anger and rage, knowing that you're the cause of it. And it's, it's you know, so really jealousy is a, you know, there's two sides to it. There's the, pers- there's the person who's acting and the person who's being jealous, and they're both... Uh, they both need counseling. They both need guidance. And um, it's really a process. It's, there's no, you know, there's no magic pill. There's no secret formula to getting over jealousy. It's something that you, first of all, have to experiment with until you actually find, you know, find out how it is you are going to feel. And the weird thing, too, with jealousy is that, you know, I've spoken to people who are, let's say, in, in polyamorous relationships where... You know, they have multiple partners who, with, you know, are doing various things, going out with other people, and they're fine. Whereas they might run across a situation with one particular person where they find themselves suddenly just incredibly jealous, and they don't know why. With all the other people, it's okay, but this one person, they just feel differently about it. So it's really an unknown, it's unexpected, and it's unquantifiable, uh, which is really what makes it exciting and at the same time scary. Mm-hmm. So the main thing with jealousy, though, is that it, it is a process and that um, if, after having gone through the process, you come to the conclusion that, you know, it's just something that you don't, you can't have in your life, that you cannot deal with, then, you know, you have to act accordingly. In other words, you might have to just close down your relationship or find a relationship where the person is just into monogamy. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, there's no, there's no easy answer for it. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, I like what you're saying. Like it requires, it's a, like a choice that requires flexibility and courage to take that harder road. But yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, but you know, I mean, it really comes down to also how do you how do you see your life? You know, what do you want from your life? Do you want to spend every night just watching TV, sitting on the couch, and really just not having anything new or exciting happen to you, and just everything is known and, um, you know, sort of, um, it's all set for you. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people for whom that works. You know, they, they really don't like their feathers ruffled. They just, they want to know what's going to happen tonight and tomorrow night and for the next 10 years. They like everything set. And so for those people, you know, um, <laughs> Why bother? Why go through all of the kind of, you know, um, upheaval? It's not worth it. So for someone like that, it wouldn't be worth it. But there are, there are many people, many, many people for whom monogamy is, is uncomfortable in, that, in the same way that, um, you know, the upheaval is uncomfortable. And they really they need to express themselves in a multiple partner or in a, in a less confining way. 
Hi, I'm Sarah on the Arts Report, CITR 101.9 FM. Interesting, eh? Wow, the show's gone fast. It feels like a whirlwind. I feel like I'm just alone in this booth. Is anybody listening? My mom? Maybe Todd Fancy? Um, That was Mark Bentley Cohen, and he's got a show, a one-man play, by Hung, Fit, and Married, An Erotic Journey, which is on at the queer arts festival the first show's tomorrow night july 25th so check out queerartsfestival.com for details um i'm gonna wrap up and leave you with the song by a cool performer she's i'll play her again through over the next few weeks kinney star she's playing august 2nd um and she's an acclaimed canadian musician identifies as bisexual please prove that to me kinney star she's supernaturally gorgeous part mohawk um, Aboriginal, very successful career. Nellie Furtado cites her as an influence, and I think Nellie means that she totally ripped off Kenny, Kenny Starr. Uh, I remember meeting Kenny Starr back in the day when she was dating my friend's younger brother, and she was like so cool and hot, we kind of hated her. Um, so, anyways, she's got a voice, really beautiful voice, does this kind of hip hop stuff. She kind of is like Cat Power plus Fiona Apple plus a bit of Buffy St. Marie. Um, And so I'm going to play her song, Another's Gone. Now, it seems to be either like an actual cover or kind of like taken from the Queen song. Like when I was listening to it, I was like, what is this? What is this? Um, And I think it's a Queen song. So I'm going to play that. Um, and we'll leave you for this evening. I'm going down to the Queer Arts Festival opening art party gala. Let's see how gay it gets. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley, and I'll be back next week, July 31st, to talk more about the Queer Arts Festival and the Powell Street Festival. Enjoy the summer weather and keep on rocking. In the free world, this is Kinney Star, Another's Gone. Look out. Steve walks wearily down the street His brimple way down low Ain't no sound but the sound of his feet Machine guns ready to go Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? Cause out of the door
Come down to the PAL Street Festival this year celebrating artistic champions. Experience traditional and contemporary Japanese-Canadian performances including taiko drumming, sumo wrestling, martial arts, visual arts, traditional ceremonies, and so much more. Happening August 3rd and 4th at Oppenheimer Park and surrounding venues and running from 11.30 to 7 p.m. Daytime admission is free. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts, get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine, or go online to CITR.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? concept. I wanted to work on something that had to do with free will and